Foundation and Bounds. Built to stimulate around the eyes. Greatest and greatest wellness trends, treatments, and experience. Magnesium is naturally found in foods like. This is the Well and Good podcast. Tune in to find the wellness that fits your frequency. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello. And welcome to the Well and Good Podcast. I am Sinikiwe Stephanie Dilawayo, founder and creative director of NAYA. NAYA is an organization that sits at the intersection of social justice and well-being in order to disrupt what it looks like and who gets to be physically, spiritually, and mentally well. In this episode, I chat with Hannah Summerhill co-author of the book, Real Friends Talk About Race. In this conversation, we get real about being in cross-racial relationships, whether they be platonic, familial, or romantic. As a white woman, Hannah is transparent about why having challenging conversations is imperative for white folks. I hope you enjoy the conversation and thank you for listening. I'm Hannah Summerhill. I'm a white woman. My pronouns are she, her, and uh, I also identify as a Jewish woman. I am the recent author, co-author of a book called Real Friends Talk About Race with my business partner, Izu Pulfleet Mukantavana, and it's about bridging the gaps between women of color and white women. And that just came out in April, and uh, it was based off of our podcast, the Kinswoman podcast, which has the same ethos. And the Kinswoman podcast was born from conversations that started in my living room in 2019, where after I met my partner at The Wing, my business partner at The Wing, Izu, at a race event about creating more empathy between women of color and white women, I just thought we can't end here, though The Wing wasn't really willing to continue the dialogue and make it a series. So I said, just come over to my tiny ass New York City apartment and let's continue this. So from there, um, that really started what became the Kinswoman, which was this idea that we need to have hard conversations, lean into the discomfort and create space where we can build trust between us. 
So I think the first question that I have for you is, could you define in your own words, white supremacy and white privilege? Um, Because so often when Black folks or people of color talk about these things, the default for white folks is often that it, it doesn't exist or it's not true. So I would love to hear from you how you define those two things. For me, white supremacy, the phrase is so literal in our country and really the world, whiteness reigns supreme. And that's what our society in the U.S. has been built on for the past 400 years has been the subjugation of indigenous folks, black folks, people of color, while whiteness retains its power, money, admiration, opportunity, all at the top. And I think when white people hear the term white supremacy or white supremacists, they picture neo-Nazis or cross-burning, but it's really an ideology and a system that we're born into that's embedded in every layer of our society and often our interpersonal interactions. Like for white people listening, it's like who in our life is there to serve us? What do they look like and who do we consider our peers? And I think that can usually be a good example of the way white supremacy plays out in our personal lives or in our workplaces. Who's our boss? Who gets the uh, big paycheck? Who gets the accolades? Who has the power? White supremacy is really in everything from the interpersonal interactions and in our daily lives to the systems that we exist within, whether that's in education, the corporate sector, the government. And once you start to dig, things may seem, I think, we we, we see these, these markers that we think are progress. But then when you dig under a little bit, you recognize how can there be progress when we're built on such a web of white supremacy? Like even the roads that we drive on, usually the highways that exist were built over and through Black communities in the 1950s uh, during that industrial boom. So it's in the air that we breathe. It's literally on the roads that we drive. It's in it's in our everyday ideology. So that's how I would define white supremacy briefly. And then white privilege is a byproduct of white supremacy because whiteness is at the top and we're at the top. We have the most privilege. And so that means like even just for me having the privilege of walking out of my apartment and knowing that the people in my neighborhood assume that I live here, you know, or applying for a job and knowing that my name, Hannah Summerhill, sounds pretty white, even though my last name is my husband's, which is, and he's black, but knowing that, you know, my name sounds really white and American and how that offers me opportunities, how whiteness is usually seen as dainty, as safe, and that I benefit from all of those uh, assumptions and stereotypes. And then on the flip side of that, um, those who don't have white privilege have to experience the underbelly of everything that I get to experience and at the cost of my own privilege. So briefly, those are how I would describe the two terms. Thank you. I'm curious about how you first 
started to reckon with race. In the book you talk about, you grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and you talk about in middle school how folks were kind of separated out by test scores. Um, And you mentioned how you kind of began to notice like who was placed where um, in terms of racial hierarchy. Um, And as we know, maybe some people know, maybe some people don't, but I know that I wasn't necessarily like the best test taker. And so things like that, especially for folks who are maybe neurodivergent or have ADHD, right? Like those can really impact one's ability to take a test. So can you just talk about that like fundamental like learning of how I mean essentially that was segregation right like yes. people were being segregated out by test scores which is really fucked up to think about and you talk about how folks were literally you couldn't sit with anyone at other oh who were in like if you got a certain test score you couldn't sit with someone else that had a mm-hmm. different test score than you um which is segregation and fucked up. Um, So now I think, you know, I think in the moment maybe, and I don't want to speak for you, but as a young person, like maybe it wasn't so evident. Um, But now since you are really involved in this work of actively being an ally or being anti-racist, I'm curious how you think about it. Mm. So I grew up in a, a town in Pennsylvania called Allentown. It's about a hundred thousand people, or was at the time, maybe more now, and it was largely a black and Hispanic population. Um, usually, folks who had moved from New York City and and been priced out of living in New York, immigrants who had been priced out of living in New York, would make their way to Allentown, which was only about ninety minutes from New York City. So, growing up, I was a minority as a white person, but going back to the privilege. I was ranked literally at the top. And in middle school, we were separated. So in sixth grade, there were 10 levels, 6'1", 6'2", 6'3", and so on. And most of the white kids, based on performance, were in 6'1". And we were only allowed to have classes with the 6'1 kids, only allowed to sit at lunch with the 6'1 kids. And then every um, classroom and lunch table was organized by where you fell, you know, between 6'1 and 6'10. That continued the next year in seventh grade when I was placed in 7'1. So in writing the book and just thinking about aspiring towards allyship and how these ideas and hierarchies kind of shaped my worldview and where I grew up, I've thought a lot about that time because it, like you said, was very obvious segregation and absolutely made us all, even though we were minorities, we were like these prized minorities who were literally labeled number one. I don't know if that's still the system at the school, but I think that the impact that that had on the white kids in terms of like superiority, supremacy, and then of course, everyone else who didn't identify as white, definitely like I think about our young minds and how that shaped us all and the trajectory then that that may have influenced us to go on. So when and why did it become important for you to reconcile your own 
privilege Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of folks in 2020, Black Square Summer, as I like to call it, (laughs) um, got really excited by this idea of allyship and learning to be quote unquote, better white people. Um, And since then, I would say there has been like a very intense backlash in terms of Mm -hmm. using woke, right? Anything that is disliked by folks is now woke, whereas Black people use the term woke to define a heightened consciousness of what we go through. It's just become so frustrating to see how that word is now a marker of hate in the world. Um, So yeah, I'd really love for you to chat about like why it's been important for you to reconcile that. Yeah. Like a lot of um, white liberal folks, I was raised to be colorblind and to not see race. And I write about this in our book. And then it wasn't until probably my early to mid twenties that I began to see that that was actually an extremely privileged worldview. And the big catalyst was definitely meeting my husband, who is Black, 10 years ago. The uh, social justice, I think, like empathetic part of me has always been there. And, you know, 2013 or 2012, I was a fellow for Obama's Organizing for Action, which was his nonprofit arm, and really passionate about equity, about making sure that our world is a safe place. Of course, there was so much that I didn't know at the time, but that's when the seeds really began to be planted is when I got interested in politics and started to see how that impacted people on a day-to-day level. And then meeting my husband was a huge catalyst in the sense that I began to recognize and become aware of the ways that society would just treat us so differently, the measures that he would have to take that I would never think twice about. And I just remember thinking, this is somebody that I love who's an incredible human. It's not fair that he has to do that. And that was really what began to crack the white lens that I looked at the world through. And I definitely like I want to make it clear to people like I and I say this in the book I wasn't just like one day sprinkled with woke dust and I didn't have like super super progressive parents and I have felt shame over the years for being like wow like it really took me living with and loving a black person to wake up to this and to wake up to my own white privilege and my responsibility um but again that's one of the reasons that I co-wrote the book was like I hope that for other white folks, I want them to learn my lessons a little quicker than I did. So meeting him was a huge turning point. But then, of course, he has male privilege. And I knew that I was only seeing one experience by witnessing his. So that really inspired me to start unlearning, to relearn, to be more curious about what I didn't know, my own assumptions, my own biases, my own white responsibility. And then it was kind of like down the rabbit hole for me a little bit. And then when I met you and you gave me that book, White Fragility, at the time when I was, you know, trying to start the employee resource group, it was like so much, so much in that moment, I think that was 2018, was just coalescing for me in anger. Like 
anger that I I know that is not a unique feeling um, when it comes to these issues. But I was just at this place where I was like, I know there's a lot that I don't know, but I need to do something like something. I need to channel this. I need to use my privilege in some way. And it's really been a learning lesson and how to channel that energy and that privilege uh, that I have. Why do you think it's important for white people to be in relationship with the fact that they are white and Mm -hmm. to not deny it? Because I feel like so often that happens, right? There's a there's a implicit understanding that you see me and you see that I am not the same color as you, right? Maybe, maybe like, I think you might have a heightened awareness of it now that you're not kind of operating under this like colorblind assumption. But I think to your example of who is in service of you, right? Generally, when you notice people who are in positions to serve, um, those people don't have the same skin color as you, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I am curious about why you think it is important for white people to be in relationship with their race. It's so important because I think for such a long time, white people we feel like, we felt like, or a lot of us still do that, we're raceless, that whiteness is this default blank slate that we have. And of course, if we believe that, then everyone else becomes other. And if we see ourselves as the main character and everyone else is just supporting, then that is white supremacy. So I think having inquiry into what whiteness is, like how we perceive our whiteness, how we use our whiteness, how we think about our whiteness in relation to others is one of the most important things that we can do if we say that we're aspiring towards allyship. Otherwise, like I just don't think there's a foundation that we can work from if we're not curious about that and don't reckon with our own whiteness and what that means. If we don't talk about our own whiteness, we can never connect it or connect our own behavior to white supremacy. So even though it's not fun and even though it's uncomfortable, I think if we don't examine the ways that we uphold white supremacy as white people, how we're part of it, how we benefit from it, then it's really, really hard for us to come from a grounded, humble place when it comes to aspiring towards allyship. I want to touch on comfort and safety. Um, because we live in a world where safety and comfort of people in white bodies is valued over that of anyone else. Mm-hmm. And why then, kind of to the other question I just asked you, why the onus is on people in white bodies to learn how to be uncomfortable um, instead of placing the responsibility on people that aren't white. Um, every time someone is murdered um, by police brutality or otherwise having to do with racism, the default of white people is so often like, what did this person do? What did this person do? What did they do to be shot? There was just a woman who was shot by her white neighbor after going to get her child's iPad. The white neighbor had had an altercation or was saying slurs to the children and subsequently like took one of the kids' iPad. And so the mom went back to see about getting the iPad back um, and the woman shot her. And I just, 
every single time, like I, I should know better at this point not to look in the comments, but it's always just like, well, there's got to be more. There's got to be more to the story when, when oftentimes like it's very clear, right? It's very clear that a white person was uncomfortable and felt as though they needed to take matters into their own hands. And so they did. Um, yeah. So I would love for you to just chat about being uncomfortable. It's also weird to me that we live, I don't know if it's of this moment or what it is, but there's just a a thing happening where people can't be uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. Like just being uncomfortable either makes people angry or violent. And it, it's so strange to me. Like I am uncomfortable all the time and it doesn't make me violent. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just weird how that paradigm of violence has become so acceptable um, as it pertains to being uncomfortable. Yes. Uh, Thank you for this question. I think there's a huge difference between discomfort and threat. And as white people, we conflate the two. We think that if we feel discomfort, that's threat, that we're in danger. And we need to have context that historically, we are way safer, as you said, than people who don't live in white bodies. Whiteness is such a safety net for us. So our discomfort is not the same as actual threat. And we really need to recognize that one of the things that we can do with our privilege is at the very least be a little bit uncomfortable. And I think, like you said, There's this desire to run from anything that's uncomfortable, maybe because it shows who we, it reveals who we really are. And similarly to you, but in different ways and for different reasons, like being a white woman in this space, like, yeah, I always feel uncomfortable. I think that's a good thing. I shouldn't feel comfortable. Like, there's so much I don't know. I'm still learning. I'm not an expert. I'm uncomfortable all the time, but that doesn't stop me. I mean, it makes me want to be better and do better and do more, but I recognize that there's no threat. I mean, yeah, sometimes I'm like, I could get, I could say the the wrong thing and get quote unquote canceled. But again, what is even cancellation? Um, So what is the threat to me? There's, there's no threat. I mean, I, my mind can go to dark places, but if I can use my privilege and be a little bit uncomfortable to make other people's lives safer, I think that's a really fair trade-off. But there are two different things. Discomfort and threat are two different things. And discomfort prevents white people from self-inquiry, from talking about this with their friends, from taking any kind of action. And that's a problem. Izu always says, discomfort doesn't kill. And that really should be a mantra for anybody who wants to call themselves an ally or an advocate. It's like living in that space is is absolutely okay. Like going back to what I said about like, I think the, the discomfort, like not wanting to feel uncomfortable comes from like, we want to hide parts of ourselves. Maybe we're not as good of a person. Maybe we, we don't really live our values the way that we say that we do. And I'm just trying to live in a very vulnerable, open place all the time. And I can't, like, again, it's not easy. It's not comfortable. I'm like, these are my flaws. This is the ways that I've messed up as a white person, as a white partner, as a friend, as like a daughter-in-law. But if that's just, if like, if I can just aspire towards being more and more 
open, vulnerable, and empathetic, then I really, it, it helps the discomfort because I just feel like I have nothing to hide. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I want to break down, as you know, these conversations aren't comfortable for either side, right? The person that isn't white is often uncomfortable as the person that is white. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you kind of break down a methodology for having this dialogue and you call it the four foundations. Mm -hmm. Um, You describe they are time, transparency, communication, and consistency. Um, Could you walk us through those? Yeah. So the four foundations um, that you just mentioned are really the bedrock that we write about for building cross-racial trust. I think one of the reasons that it's hard for us to have these conversations about race isn't just because white people are uncomfortable, but it's also because we have no leg to stand on. We have not built trust with the people that we're trying to connect with or learn from or understand. So in order to build trust, the two T's and the two C's are really what I lean on and what I think other aspiring allies might find helpful. So the first to building trust, like you said, is time. I feel like when it comes to allyship, we so badly want to truncate the time that it takes to build trust in any other relationship, whether it's with friends, colleagues, potential romantic partners. We know that trust isn't built overnight. But I think, and this comes back to the white privilege and white supremacy of just like, oh, of course this is going to happen. Of course people are going to trust me. Um, we think that the time, that it just won't take a lot of time for us to build trust, that it should be instant, that people should know we are an ally because we wear a pride pin or wave a pride flag. But that is really problematic because it undercuts the same kind of care that you would give to any other relationship where you know that time is necessary and required for building trust. We overlook it when it comes to allyship and building bridges cross-racially. So time is really important. The second is transparency. There's often this tendency when we get uncomfortable as white people to be like, oh, I know that. Oh, of course. Yeah, I know that. You know, I've read about this. Um, I read an article or I saw something on Instagram or TikTok. But really having the confidence to learn in public and learn as you go and be transparent about what you don't know and also be transparent about what you're doing is really key to building trust. And then thirdly, communication. 
being able to have conversations where you can speak your truth, but also listen deeply is really important. One of the things that I've seen is when it comes to these cross-racial dialogues, if a friend of color is sharing with me or somebody else about their experience, there's this tendency to want to relate on the white person's part and be like, oh yeah, you know, I can relate because I've experienced sexism. And we conflate these levels of oppression, not really understanding intersectionality. And we it's natural to want to connect, of course, but those are moments that we really should just be listening to understand instead of listening to try to equalize or to undermine, which is ultimately what it does. The last is consistency. And this could not be, this is probably one of the most important ones. As you said, Black Square Summer was three years ago. Where is all that money that was promised, that energy? Where is all that action, consistency? Where are the changes? It's disgusting, honestly, to see how quickly we can move on and how little we hold ourselves and others accountable to the promises that we made. I I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I understand that we can't live with a sense of urgency at all times, but we know better. And it is shameful that as white people, we're not doing better. So going to one March in 2020 doesn't mean anything. Reading White Fragility doesn't mean anything. Like one and done does not mean anything. Building trust requires consistency. So those are the four foundations as we see them. And I really think for aspiring allies who want to do this work, like getting really familiar with those is a good place to start. You've brought up allyship quite a few times now. And I personally despise that word because In my experience, people think that having proximity to someone who is marginalized, um, that could look like gender identity marginalization, that could look like racial identity marginalization. People just assume that because they're in proximity to these folks and they maybe put something on their social media platform, right, or maybe even are maybe work with someone who is marginalized, right? People just assume that having this proximity means that they are an ally. When in reality, if you are not actively being a participant in disrupting white supremacy or assessing your own white privilege as a white person, I don't feel as though you can call yourself an ally. And also, I personally just don't feel as though you can just decide that for yourself, Yeah. right? You can't just wake up one day and just say, like, I'm an ally. Like, I'm going to ask you, like, okay, but what have you done? Mm -hmm. How have you supported a a marginalized person if you want to claim that you're an ally, right? And I think the same also goes for using the term Mm anti-racist, right? Like, white people get so afraid of being called racist. They're more afraid of being called racist, actually, than they are of doing racist things, which is crazy to me Mm -hmm. because that racism oftentimes leads to someone like myself being harmed. So yeah, I, I just, I'm curious how you feel about those terms and being actionable versus being performative. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're absolutely right. Proximity does not equal allyship at all. That word is, <laughs> it is not a great word. You're right. And it's funny because every time I write it or type it, it gets that little red line underneath because I don't even think it's like an actual word. It's just something we've like made up. But for me, I'm married to a black man. Hope to have children with him doesn't mean anything when it comes to being being an ally. If anything, it can be harmful. When I see inter- interracial couples, sometimes I actually get really worried because I'm like, are they having the conversations we're having? Like, I, I don't look at that and think that that's a measure of allyship or um, uh, progress- progressiveness whatsoever. If anything, I think white it can make people white people feel really good pat themselves on the back and then like not do a single effing thing so allyship is really like requires so much action it is a verb it's not a state of mind and it's not something that we can self identify several years ago you know izu would like when, that's one of the foundations of our work as the kinswoman was like izu was like you cannot self identify as an ally it is up to me if you're an ally it is up to the community that you wish to be an ally to if you are one. And that's why I say aspiring ally or aspiring allyship, because if we claim something and then kind of own it, but without putting any uh, work behind it, we're just going to get really lazy. Like it's not like a diploma or a degree or like a box that you can check. It's something that evolves day to day. I think my level of allyship to my husband, for example, like that's an ever moving thing and it's up to him, you know, a moment by, it could be measured moment by moment. And one of the things that I decided to do in 2020 was write myself an allyship mission statement where I made sure I could put it somewhere that I saw it every day so that I remember that it was an actionable thing and not a state of mind. And for me, that looks like it might sound like very cut and dry, but for me, I was like, I'm going to do 30 minutes of anti-racism education or action every single day. And I hold myself to that. And it's become just this thing where it's part of my life. You know, it's not something I have to like schedule. It's just become part of my everyday work. And it's, you know, it's a 360 holistic mindset for me that influences all my actions. So I don't think we think about allyship or action that way as aspiring allies, as white people. We're like, oh, it's just a state of mind or it's how I vote. But it's like, no, like what are we doing to actually put real weight behind that? If I say that I'm a writer and I never sit down and write, I'm not a writer, you know, but if you care about things, you schedule them. You're like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write today. And it's the same with a lot of other things that we say that we care about, but when it comes to allyship, we we get super lazy as white people and we think that it doesn't require any actual action. How do you actually cultivate relationship across race? Um, you've brought up your husband quite a few times. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes in these conversations, there becomes like an excitement for people to want to be in relationship with folks who are different from them racially. Um, But that can often feel on the other end um, performative. 
You know, I don't know. I I just find it weird when I see photos that people post online and there isn't like one person of color in that group, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas I can look at my friend group and, and note that it is very diverse in all of the ways. And so for that to not strike a white person as odd, or if they do have that revelation, then how can they actually genuinely cultivate those relationships instead Mm -hmm. of kind of doing it in a performative manner? It goes back to the time that we were talking about with, with building trust. I mean, you're right. It's like, and I definitely was this person too, like, oh, okay. Like I'm an ally. Where are all my friends of color now? You know, how are they going to know that I'm a good person and like want to be my friend? And I definitely went in with naivete about, about that um, without taking the time, you know, for those four foundations. And for me, it really happened gradually and over time based on the work that I've been doing, like meeting all of the people who, you know, have come on our podcast, Kinswomen as guests, um, have become lifelong friends or through the nonprofit that I'm on, uh, they've become some of my best friends since I moved out here to California. But that takes, you know, those relationships have taken time. And I have didn't set out with this intention of I'm going to diversify my friend group. My friend group was white for a really long time. I, you know, was in a I went to college and was in a sorority. My sorority was almost completely white for several of the years that I was there. It was completely white. And I never thought twice about it. I mean, I never thought, why aren't women of color coming in the doors to rush? And if they are, why aren't we accepting them? Like, what is wrong with our sorority that we're so Aryan? Like, that level of inquiry in college just was not there. But as I got older and, you know, living in New York and I – I definitely would look around at work and think, oh, okay, well, there's like, there's a black person who's an assistant. There's a Latinx woman who look works in HR. Like, this is like an equitable, diverse workplace. Like, I would just think that these superficial signifiers meant that the workplace was equitable. That you know, I was living and working in a diverse environment without actually thinking about what the experience of working in a place like that was for. Um, Hell. 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 Right. Yeah. As I learned, yeah, from from friends like you. But I think like even if we do have friends of color in, in our life, we can't assume that if because if we're not having these kinds of conversations, like how deep are those relationships really? You know, because I, I it's one thing to have friends of different identities in your life. And I think it's good to want to, you know, learn from and have a diverse uh, perspective and surround yourself with people from all over and from all different backgrounds. But are you making that your friendship a safe place for them? You know, like what are you doing to set aside your or use in a productive way your white privilege? How is white supremacy seeping into the relationship or happening on an interpersonal level? I think, you know, after we find friends or, or we're with, we create friendships of diverse backgrounds, what are we doing to maintain those friendships as safe and equitable places? 
those are important questions. You mentioning Dave again, sorry, your husband. Yeah. I am curious about being in genuine relationship as a romantic partner. Um, because as you said, it is not enough just to be with someone of a racially different background. Like you actually still have to do the work. Um, and I think that that so often gets missed. Um, and I really think about it as it impacts, like if you're someone who decides to have a child, right, with someone of a different race and how that lack of awareness of being white can then subsequently impact your child. Um, So I'd love for you to chat about that a little bit. Yeah. Going into this relationship 10 years ago, I was so naive. I was like, you know, he's black, I'm white, and that's great. We'll live happily ever after. And then recognizing that that was just such a naive worldview to have. I mean, not only does do we have to deal with the outside discrimination um, and how it impacts us as a couple, and that's you know, you know, be, being underpaid or um, you know not feeling safe in places that we want to go on vacation, like really considering the places that we live, those all need to be considered. And for me as a partner, I'm just really grateful that we've created a space where this is something that we can talk about every day and he can call me on my whiteness. Like I wrote about this in the book. We were driving a couple years ago and I don't even remember what the fight was about, but like we got into a fight and I was like getting really heated And he pulled over and he was like, you don't understand like how dangerous you're making this for me. If people were to look into the car and see a black man and a white woman fighting, like they could call the cops. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, you're absolutely right. Or um, there was another example last summer where we were at the beach and like since we moved to California, I was like, okay, we got to be really good about, you know, wearing our sunscreen And I kept kind of badgering him about, you know, putting on sunscreen. He was like, you need to stop policing my black body. You do not have black skin. Like, stop policing my black body. And in that moment, like, it was really hard to sit with that because, of course, like, I, in my nonprofit work, we're working to, on de-escalation policies, like, with the police. We're working on police making making uh, the relationship with the community and police better and safer. And yet in my own relationship, I'm policing my my husband. That isn't easy to reckon with, but that's like a necessary truth for me to hear and to sit with. And I think one of the reasons we haven't had kids yet, I'm 36 and he's 43. And I'm at this point, especially in the suburbs of California, like one of the only people that I know to not have kids is like, I want to be, I just feel the responsibility so heavily of what it would mean to raise a biracial child who has an experience that actually neither of us do and what that means to bring a child into the world. At this moment in time, I'm scared. I'm trying to already, you know, do what I can to make sure that our child feels safe and loved and appreciated, like in every space that they're in, especially at home. But then I I sometimes think I'm like, you're black, I'm Jewish. What a history we have to share and pass down to 
this child or these kids, God willing, like it it's hard. And I think a lot of my white friends and white relationships like don't really consider that those extra fears of raising a child of color. It's like, oh, like just have kids, you know, just do it or, you know, you'll never feel ready. It, they're just an extra layer. You know, there's just an extra layer and a responsibility. And yeah, it's I don't have any answers on that sneak away, but those are something I think about all the time. I mean, I think if it makes you feel better, I appreciate the level of consideration that you have because I don't know that everyone operates at that level of consideration, um, not just when it comes to having children, but also just being in relationships specifically with a black person. Um, like I've just had experiences of, you know, and you and I are a similar age. I'm 35. Mm-hmm. I think at 35, if you are entering into a relationship with me as a white person, friendship or otherwise, and you don't have a baseline understanding of how you exist in the world and how that is different from how I exist in the world, then the chances of us going deeper than just like a surface level relationship probably ain't gonna happen. Like mm-hmm. just keeping it at a hundred, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and so I, I want you to fully recognize how thankful I am that there are some people like you in the world that are considerate about these things. Um, I do wish that there were more people um, that were considerate of these things, but you know, I will take it where I can get it. I want to kind of end on like, what do you hope this work will do like writing this book, um, having these challenging conversations. Yeah. What, what do you hope for them? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for these incredible questions. Um, I actually don't often get questions like this. I think because the bar is so low for white people, gutter. literally like, gutter. you know, that like yeah. no one really ever even challenges me because yeah, the bar is so low. And, and I mean that for white people too. It's like, I don't know. I I just and you've always done that and I've always appreciated it because you've inspired me so much and you've been a beacon for me in some ways. Um so I just want to say I appreciate this dialogue so much. But for this book, for Real Friends Talk About Race, I want this work to re-energize and reinvigorate and remind white people why we made all of those promises in 2020 and why this work is still desperately urgent and our responsibility, like taking accountability and responsibility for our impact in this world and recognizing what white supremacy has taken from us, how we have contributed to it, and how it shows up in our interpersonal relationships in ways that we might not even realize. I want this book to inspire really transparent, necessary, deep conversations, conversations with ourselves, conversations with our best friends, with our partners, with our family members, with our colleagues, so that we feel more equipped to start articulating and having dialogues around these topics because we can't avoid them. It is literally life and death. Our discomfort is not worth prioritizing over other people's safety. And 
I think this book is perfect for book clubs, to be honest, too. But really anybody, and I know the cover's pink, but it's for men and women and non-binary folks. I just hope that this book inspires some really deep internal and external dialogue with ourselves and others about how to build trust across racial lines. On today's show, you heard me, Sinikiwe, Stephanie DeLueo, in conversation with Hannah Summerhill. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. This episode was produced by Taylor Camille and edited by our friends at Edit Audio. Our theme music was created by Madeline Kukomsky and Matt DiDomenico. Our show art was designed by Jenna Gibson and Karina Masonette.